Hello and welcome to the sixth season of The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and the natural world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, as we dive into the complex and challenging questions of our time and explore how some of the great minds are forging new and creative paths forward. For more information and resources about today's guest and the topics we explore, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Today I speak with Sharath Jeevan, an author and speaker who helps organisations and individuals to reignite inner drive and solve deep motivational challenges. Recognised as one of the UK's 10 leading social entrepreneurs in 2019, he holds degrees from Cambridge University, Oxford and INSEAD and was awarded an honorary doctorate from Roehampton University for his contributions to the field in 2017 and elected an Acacia Fellow in 2014. Sharath's work has been featured in the New York Times, The Economist, CNN, National Public Radio and The Times of India, and he has served on the high-level steering group of the Education Commission, the preeminent global think tank founded by former British Prime Minister Gordon Brown. His forthcoming book, Intrinsic, A Manifesto to Ignite Our Inner Drive, comes out in September and explores how we can harness groundbreaking research to solve what he describes as our motivational crisis so as to better create the lives we want. In this conversation, we navigate everything from motivation and meaning to purpose, autonomy and mastery, and I'm really excited to share his insights with you here. Shara, thank you so much for joining me in conversation today. Hey, real pleasure, Natalie. So great to have a chance to talk. So I'm going to start with a question that I always invite my guests to reflect upon, and that is, what do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now? Yeah, so I was just reading this great piece, Natalie, by uh, Adam Grant, the psychologist uh, in the New York Times uh, last week, and he was talking a lot about this concept of languishing. And if you think of the, you know, the human spectrum, the human experience, you could go all the way from depression at one level, one side of the spectrum, all the way to flourishing and thriving at the other. And what some of the data is showing is that, first of all, uh, there's been a sharp increase in, in, in rates of depression, for example. So UK data from the government just last week showed that the number of people who are depressed has, has doubled uh, through the pandemic, and especially severe among groups like young women, for example. Mm. So we've got that dynamic going on. But I think perhaps an even more worrying dimension is that a number of us who would normally be flourishing and thriving have been pulled into this kind of languishing phase, a sense of, you know, things are not terrible, terrible, but they're not great either. And I think all the evidence we're seeing suggests that's a very dangerous place to be long term. We can withstand it for a while, but it's a bit like burning down energy. You kind of burn it and burn it and burn it and there's nothing much left. And I think it's so important we get out of that that state. And I think that's where kind of just to locate my work on motivation that's kind of the frame I'm thinking a lot about as we, you know, we come out of the pandemic in many, many countries. Mm. And so before we dive into your fascinating work on motivation, which is so timely and poignant right now, I'd like to ask where you're finding meaning at the moment, because obviously a lot of the ways in which some of us get through very difficult times is to locate a deeper sense of purpose or meaning to kind of orient ourselves through. So how might you begin to answer that? Yeah, so I think uh, a lot of this has been, you know, really thinking, I think in, in pandemic um, in the last year, we've been in this kind of 
almost survival mode is, is probably not too dramatic to say because we've been saying, look, let's just get through it. Let's worry about our own health, about the health of our loved ones and our, and our family, of course. And of course, that's been very, very, that's very, very important. And in some countries, at least we're coming through that. Um, I think you were saying in Barcelona, things are looking a lot brighter, certainly here in, in London as well. I think it's really important we go back to some of the deeper ideas that, that really, the, or the deeper things that really motivate us. Ideas of purpose, autonomy and mastery that I'll talk more about because they are really key to actually having to having really deeply fulfilling lives and lives where we fundamentally help and serve others. And I think it, the more we stay in this kind of languishing state, the more risky is that we never get back. Hmm. So let's talk about some of your work and your intriguing background. So you founded SCIR Education back in 2012. And for those of us who weren't familiar with it, which I wasn't until I came across your work, it's the world's largest initiative to improve intrinsic motivation in the field of education. And the project raised over $25 million in funding to help reignite the motivation of over 200,000 teachers, 35,000 schools and 7 million children in emerging countries. So I'm really curious to ask, what started you out on this path? Yeah, so for me, I, I was born in India, uh, and I was just really, first of all, just really admiring what the government had done in building a million free government schools across the country. And for the first time for a generation, for a country, it was going through deep, you know, economic and social change. There was a chance for every child, and especially every girl, to, to go to school. But what I also realised very quickly working in that system was that it was a false promise, really. You know, kids could go to school. 240 million children were in the school system, an amazing achievement, but they weren't deeply learning and deep, weren't deeply engaging. And all of this really fundamentally stem, stemmed with the relationship with their teachers, who had, in a way, lost that drive to want to teach and to, to be a great, great teacher. And that's how Stir sort of started off with that core insight and saying, you know, how can we try to resolve that problem of motivation? It felt very very fluffy, very fuzzy, very hard to, to sort of solve. But that became the thing that obsessed me for the last last nine years ago till I handed over the organisation uh, at the end of last year. And so given that you have such a diasporic background, and I ask because I have personal interest here, my dad was born in Gibraltar, but with very mixed heritage, and my mother in Iran, but to a French-Belgian mother. Um, I'm really curious to ask how your experiences, both in India, in the UK, and across the world, as you've worked with countless organisations, how that kind of mixed and varied experience has shaped your perspective on what drives us. When it comes to intrinsic motivation, first I'd like to ask you how you define it, but then secondly, I'm curious to know if you've observed cultural differences in terms of how it shows up, or whether there are common threads that, that seem to transcend context. Great question, Ashley, and, and um, I'll talk about the, the, the sort of drivers of intrinsic motivation in a second, but just on that cultural question you asked. Mm. It really surprised me, honestly, because I, I thought, you know, is this a kind of fad for pampered Westerners, to be, to be very honest? And, uh, you know, purpose and all this stuff, you know, do, what, what if you, you, know, you haven't got, you know, if you're thinking about far more fundamental things, a salary, a roof over the head, etc. But I think my time working in India really changed me in that way. So I would go to these very slick IT campuses, right? You know, Google or any of these large tech companies had these beautiful campuses on the outskirts of Bangalore or Hyderabad. I'd be talking to executives there to raise money or raise awareness for our, our work. But I'd be talking to millennials or to next-gen workers who are, you know, software developers or working in the, uh, the back office of the, of the tech company or in some other role. And the issues in the zeitgeist they were facing was as acute, almost identical to what someone in San Francisco or London would, would tell me about. 
And so I think what we learn about uh, motivation, and it sort of, it absolutely backs the theory, is that things like, you know, the fancy offices, the fancy coffee machine, the beautiful campus, the free lunch, good pay, of course, very, very important. But these are fundamentally hygiene factors. They're things that they can definitely stop demotivation. But once they're in place, they can't deeply motivate us. And, you know, these, I think of these fancy campuses as great examples of what, what we would call hygiene factors in that way. So I think, you know, it, it, what's really interesting and, and intrinsic in my book is, is very global. I think I've talked to people in dozens of countries, looked at evidence across many, many countries. And, and a key, I think, goal I, I had was to try and give voice to people who wouldn't always have a voice in books. You know, we, we hear from Ethiopians, from Ugandans, from Indians, from, uh, uh, or from, from, from Chinese uh, and so on, as well, of course, as people in, in, from Britain or France or, uh, or Japan. And so I think that idea to take a global perspective on this issue that really is cross-cultural and cross-cutting because many of the themes, I think, really do go across cultures. Mm. And it's really exciting to see someone actually take a more systemic lens to something which is really, I think, in many ways, at the heart of the human experience. You know, what drives us to wake up in the morning or to look after our dependents or our loved ones? And so let's talk a bit now about your exciting book, Intrinsic, a manifesto to reignite our inner drive. It strikes me that that now as we're coming out of lockdowns in certain parts of the world, at least, um, this, this question couldn't be more poignant and timely. And you tackle some of the most challenging issues around motivation and the feeling that so many of us can slip into, which is that we're you know, simply going through the motions or waking up and continuing just because we have to or we feel like we have no other option. So... What is the way in which you conceive of intrinsic motivation in the book? And why do you feel that it's so important? So I think it's really the core idea of intrinsic motivation is to try and live our lives in a way that's much more fulfilling and basically doing whatever we do, not because we have to do it. So that's the sort of the stick, if you like. Not because there's a something promised at the end, whether it's a bonus if we're at work or if it's a trip to Disneyland if you're a child studying so not without the carrot either. But we do it because it's, it's inherently satisfying and fulfilling in its own right. And what the evidence is very clear about is the more we can live our lives according to those principles, and that's what drives us, Natalie, the more likely we're to, we're to be more motivated, happier and more fulfilled overall. So a really simple concept, but I think because of sort of some of the managerial you know, trends over the last few years, the way that our education systems have, have moved, all of these things, that simple insight has been drowned out, really. And I think increasingly, you know, I talk to, to parents in places like Uganda or London or Shanghai, and they feel they are literally putting their children through a treadmill. Mm. And the job of a, a good child is not to help achieve a flourishing child or even a happy child. It's to get them through some crazy exam system. And it's a system of tutors and ridiculous levels of extracurricular activities uh, and so on, all to get into some, you know, top university at the end of the day. And the same way it works, so many people are sleepwalking through their work and, you know, waiting for that, that, that you know, the, the hour hand, the, the minute hand to hit the five or six o'clock dial uh, and, and switch off. You can live that way. And many people, unfortunately, um, do, probably, probably billions of people around our world. But it's not a very deeply fulfilling way to live. And I think the promise of Intrinsic, the book, is that there's a much better way to live and that better way can be ours and it can be ours now. I'm curious as you're, you're describing that, I was thinking today about a particularly sticky stage of the book process that I'm going through right now. Um, 
which I'm not going to speak to in much detail because I just get, I just get angry. But it did get me thinking. I was like, oh, I'm speaking to this Sharath later. Uh, maybe I'll bring this up. There are certain things that I feel that, and maybe many of us can relate to this, but that in my life that I feel are good to do, that I should do, that allow me to do things that I enjoy perhaps more. You know, I, I don't, there are aspects of the writing process that I don't particularly enjoy, but there, there are lots of instances in which we end up doing things that's hard for us to find pleasure in or purpose in, but they serve some bigger goal. And so from that perspective, given that so many of us maybe aren't able to have the dream job or are going to be coming up against challenges such as these where we have to get through a challenging period in order to be able to do something that gives us greater sense of satisfaction, are there specific ways in which we can maybe re-engage with the thing that we're doing so that it feels less of a punishment or a means to an end and something which we can actually relate to in a different, more intrinsically motivating way? Definitely, and if it's okay, can I ask you what, what, what particular bit? I've gone through the process myself and I've had lots of uh, trauma as well, but I had a very great oh. editor. But, but um, what was most painful about these last few, few weeks? Um, the design side, because I'm a designer as well as other things. When you have competence in a particular area and you butt up against bureaucracy and opinion and stylistic differences, that's the thing that I find quite difficult, especially when it's a baby that you spent a year toiling over. <laughs> So, so I guess in that example, let's, let's take that as a, as, a, as a real example. I think, as you said, that idea of purpose. So I, I define purpose as really about knowing how what we do in our work, and in this case, your book, of course, Natalie, helps and serves others. So I guess one way of thinking about that is to say, well, look, you know, um, I may have a different view, but my publishing company has got a, a view of what will sell on a bookshelf, and they may pick something that they believe from their experience works there. It will get to more people as a result, even though it may not have been my ideal design in that example. Mm. So that there's ways, I think, of thinking about that broader purpose. And look, ultimately, my goal is to you know, help and serve others through the message of my book and helping change mindsets and behavior might be one way to go. The other thought, though, is actually sometimes to look at the issue at hand and just say, is there a way to communicate to the other person why it's so important to my motivation? And, and uh, just give me a, an example of, of another job, like in, in teaching, for example. So many of our teachers now across the, the UK right now spend hours a week entering data into spreadsheets. And, you know, it, it has to be done a bit like what you said about, you know, it's, it's all part of the process. But that's not why they came into teaching in the first place. They came to ignite young man, minds and inspire a new generation, not to crunch Excel. Mm. I think what often I find is happens is that we don't communicate what I would call the cost of an action. So why is this time being spent? So what's the cost of that on me as a teacher? It means I can't prepare my lessons at the same depth I could. It means I can't go and really address the, the kids in my class who are struggling and build a deeper relationship with them. So I think there's a, an element of one thing, putting these in your perspective yourself to make sure you can see the ultimate purpose and you don't get distracted too much by the, the immediate task at hand. But the other side about really being able to communicate why this issue is for you and be able to tell that story of the cost of an action to, you know, whether it's a publishing house or your head teacher. Mm, that's such a fascinating reframe. I think both of those perspectives are really useful. One for, you know, not losing one's sanity <laughs> and the other also for being able to clearly communicate without getting lost in the, um, in the sticky emotion of it. Because I think, you know, when we're talking about motivation and you give the wonderful example of teachers, and actually both my parents were teachers, they've retired now. And my dad taught me physics at A-level. And I could see the way that he taught that the thing that really brought him to life was seeing when students 
understood and he would try all these different keys to fit into doors that would open their minds in different ways. And it was so rewarding. But of course, the homework, the administration, the bureaucracy was such a heavy cost. And to hear you speak about it in that frame is so interesting. So let's talk a bit about those those costs then. And I want to ask how maybe you first became aware of the costs people were paying and the issues around the lack of motivation that was showing up in the people that you were engaging with. Yeah, so let's take um, let's take work as an example, actually. You know, in terms of you know we're going to spend on average about ninety thousand hours over our lifetimes working, um, and that's that's without taking into account what's almost going to certainly going to happen, which is our retirement ages will probably you know go even further out. So that might become ninety five, maybe a hundred thousand hours over over time. If you take that piece, you know, those ninety thousand hours can be hours of real deep flow of motivation, of, of a real sense of purpose that you know we're ultimately helping and serving others. But for many people, it's it's a deeply disengaging experience. And some of the Gallup data that I've been seeing, uh, this is pre-pandemic, but showing that 85% of employees are either disengaged or deeply disengaged at work. And, okay, there's a financial cost. I think the cost, um, McKinsey has estimated, is about $7 trillion a year in lost productivity uh, because of that. Just to put you know put that in perspective, you know, the pandemic uh, stimulus bill in the U.S. was about $1 or $2 trillion. So this is a you know massive cost to us economically. But I think more it's that sort of psychological cost that these are hours that we could be really achieving deep potential and, and really helping and serving others better. So a lot of uh, what I did for the book was talk to people all around the world in all kinds of occupations. So everything from, you know, top politicians to editors of The Economist to bartenders and to accountants in places like China. And what came from the, the key insight that came from all this was this idea that at work, our, our purpose really is really about helping and serving others. All jobs, if you think of how we started off as cavemen and we took different, you know, different roles around the fire, it was all designed around that. And you know, I, I would challenge anyone to name you know, any job, really, that doesn't ultimately help and serve others. But the challenge is we've sliced and diced modern organizations in such a way to dis- distract and, and take away that ultimate purpose of our work. So let me just give you, a, you know, an example. Like, you talk to an accountant and they'll say, look, you know, I had a really tough month. My, my, my manager was really tough. I, I was slightly late on my monthly management accounts. But the problem is they, they're seeing their job as producing the management accounts each month. Mm. But if you retake that lens of, look, my work is here to help and serve others, actually what they're doing is helping provide really important information to keep the company solvent, uh, which is no, no mean feat, especially in these times. Uh, you know, ca- healthy cash flow, so, so you know, staff can be paid on time, and creating great products and ultimately can serve their their customers. And their job is to really counsel and advise and inform others so they can take better decisions as a result of these management accounts. So I think what what I what I found very quickly in setting the work environment is just one example. The book is very broad and looks at a whole range of domains from parenting to relationships to our citizenship as well. But in the work domain. Yeah, this huge untapped potential. And it doesn't take a lot of money to unlock this. It just takes, a, as you said, a way of reframing and rethinking uh, modern work. And it takes some leadership as well. Mm. So thinking about leadership then, one of the things that I've been exploring for the work in my book is also the ways in which we're starting to reconsider how leadership and followership and context interrelate. And in particular, how, especially now that many workforces are dispersed, how 
other forms of non-heroic or post-heroic leadership are coming to the fore. So things that are slightly flatter in terms of hierarchy or maybe more collaborative. And I wonder if you've seen if there are specific forms of leadership or styles of leadership that engender a greater sense of connection with purpose and motivation. So one of the, yeah, it's a great question, Ashley. And I think one of the things I found as a key theme of the book is this idea of you know, what is a leader really meant to do? And I think my, uh, someone I worked with for many years, Joe Owen, another great management writer, often talks about leaders taking their organizations to a place it wouldn't have got to otherwise. Mm. And what I found in the book from a motivation point of view is that to take that one step further and say, actually, I think leaders take people they, they lead and, and ultimately serve to places they wouldn't have got to otherwise. And the core aspect of a leader actually is to be a great talent nurturer. And by that, I mean not not managing someone by performance, by saying, you know, I'm just going to take the best people, I'm going to hire the best people at a top university and manage them, expect them to do well. It's saying, I want to help that person that is in my team or in my organization be the best versions of themselves they can be. And, you know, some of the forces we've seen, you know, around inequality in, in income and opportunities and places like education that I care deeply about, what they tell us, I think, is that, that we need more and more nurturers to fulfill everyone's potential. I think movements like Black Lives Matter, Me Too, etc., have really shown, yes, they're about injustice, racial injustice or gender uh, injustice, but ultimately about this vision of, of a world where all of our talents can be recognized and, and nurtured. And what I identified in the book is a set of behaviors that great leaders do to nurture people in that way. They're not the behaviors we normally expect, but they're critical behaviours and, and a way of seeing their own motivation that really unlocks potential in, in, in those people that they, they, they lead and serve. So I'm, I'm captivated by your use of the word service because when I think of people in positions of leadership, I can think of a few wonderful individuals who I would definitely identify as being people in the service of a greater cause or in the service of employees, etc. But many people who take roots towards positions of power and authority, one might call, for many reasons, self-serving. And I don't think ambition is a bad thing. I think it could be a, a brilliant thing. But I do think there is this question then of how do we make service or the concept of service something which people yearn towards or, or long for? Because I think it's very easy to go along with many dominant cultural narratives around dominion over. And we see this pattern played out not just in human systems, but also when it comes to agriculture, ecosystems, sustainability, issues around gender, race, ability, sexuality, all of these things where there's a dominant prevailing system where it's less about being in service to and more being in a dominant or authoritative position over. Do you think that there are ways in which to help people to understand the power of service, the beauty of service, and to start to change these narratives around what service can mean and why it can be so helpful? I do think it's possible, Natalie. And I think what, for, for, for the book, I actually looked at the, uh, our political masters or leaders um, mm. and our role as citizens as one of the key chapters in the book. And what I want, the question I was trying to ask and, and hopefully have some early answers to was, why are we in this kind of very dysfunctional politics today in many countries, honestly, both in the West and, and the East, where we're increasingly driven by personality politics. And as you said, it, it almost feels like politics has become a self-serving route to keep individuals in power rather than really serve whole populations and whole citizenship, uh, citizens. And what was coming from this, these insights and the research, I talked to many politicians around the world, in House of Lords in the UK, for example, in, 
in the States, etc., was that there's this really fine line between purpose and leadership and, and outright narcissism. Mm. And what happens, I think, is because of the pressures of social media, uh, whether it's Twitter or even, even press scrutiny now, it's got to such a high degree, leaders increasingly are centralizing power. So they're saying, look, I can't trust anyone else. I'm going to have a kitchen cabinet. So they may have, you know, in the UK, maybe 20 ministers in the cabinet. But actually four or five of them, and you probably know all of them now in the UK, really decide the fate of the country. Mm. If you think of how ridiculous that is, the complexity of a country like Great Britain, it's 50, you know, FTSE 1, you know, 50 companies. No company could ever run like that. But because of that fear of scrutiny, I think there's that centralization of power then what happens is you have, in the UK, there's about 100 ministers at one time. 95 of these ministers are not being really tapped and, and, and really their, their potential and, and, and talent, as we talked about, being being nurtured. They are almost bystanders as much as, you know, those of us as citizens. And you end up with this tiny group really obsessing about themselves as a result of that, I think. So part of what I'm trying to encourage on the, the government side, talking to governments around the world, is that how do you create more autonomy, this idea that you've got really talented people in your ministerial forces, how can they all lead the areas they're meant to lead? And autonomy, that, that, that key, another really key ingredient of intrinsic motivation where you're at the wheel of the car, you can drive in the way you want to. We've got to unleash the autonomy of those, those ministers and, and many, many good MPs, hundreds of MPs in, in the UK, about 600. All of them could be making much more significant contributions to the country if the role of a leader was to set a broad vision and a national purpose, but allow much more freedom for individual MPs and, and, and ministers to really drive things in their own areas. So that's just a political or government example of that point. But I think what happens is when we confuse a nation or a company or an organization with a person, narcissism is, is almost inevitably an outcome. And we need to try and change that dynamic, unleash the motivation of the whole organization or the the whole country. I love that concept. I think it's very exciting and I think it's something which could radically transform how we relate and how we structure our systems. But of course it requires a relinquishment of power, which hopefully your book will help to assess and enable people to analyse so that we can forge more generative systems with more people tapping their potential. So let's talk about those three core concepts that you write about in the book and that you've mentioned throughout this conversation. So you mentioned purpose, autonomy and mastery as these key elements that lead towards or contribute to intrinsic motivation. Can you tell me a bit more about what they are and how we might better work with them or attain them? Yeah, so think of being a car, Natalie, where the purpose is really the, the destination you put in the GPS. It's the North Star. Where do we want to try and go? And that's almost always in that question we talked about, about that direction has got to help and serve others uh, deeply. Autonomy, let's, let's talk a bit more about autonomy and mastery, because I haven't delved in as much depth into those two areas. But they're the, the other two pillars of, of that three sort of pillars still, so, you know, PAM or purpose, autonomy and mastery. So autonomy is this really strong idea that, that we need to feel a sense of agency of the direction of our work or our lives in general, and this, the, the sad thing, as you sort of alluded to, is that we're quite worried now about, about giving away autonomy to people because we're worried it's going to be abused, right? And mm-hmm. what happens in you know, because the press and things, a small number of examples mean that we tend to sort of destroy autonomy for everyone. So we have one you know, doctor who doesn't behave well with patients or one scandal in the social care service. And these are serious scandals. That are, clearly, they're very, very important. 
But as a result, we suddenly become suspicious. How can we trust everyone, everyone else? And so we tend to think of autonomy as the same as anarchy. You know, once we unleash this, everyone will just go and do do their own thing and it'll be chaos. <laughs> and that's not what, uh, that if it's done badly, that might happen. But what I talk in the book is this, this concept of guided autonomy. We need to, yes, set clear purpose and direction and alignment around a vision and values, whether it's a company or a, a you know, a family or, or, or a country. But once that's said, we can then use that as a, as a frame to help people f- see their autonomy. Just take an example in, uh, in, in the working world. You know, until now, we've been very, very prescriptive of what hours people work, right? So, um, you know, I could, someone could be an early morning person or a night person, but they have to be in the office, or had to be in the office at least nine to five. Mm-hmm. Some of the uh, engagement polls, employee survey polls during COVID show that one of the things that employees have valued, uh, and I'd certainly speak to this, is the chance to structure our own working day in the way that suits us best. You know, I may want to wake up at six in the morning, do a couple of hours work, then drop my sons to school. And that's deeply liberating. Now, if everyone does all their entirely their own hours, there's no, no, no common timetable. I don't know whether I can speak to my colleague, I can answer a question, all these things. But if, you know, some companies, what they've said is, look, we're going to have a, a, a t- um, 10 to 2 o'clock is the core working times when everyone has got to be online and available that time. Four hours is more than enough time to have, you know, meetings or catch-ups or quick chats, whatever. But the rest of the working day, employees can can choose and work according to their own needs and styles. And so that's an example of this, this concept of guided autonomy where it's not chaos, it's not sort of anarchy, but it really unleashes the ability for all of us to have more agency over our our lives. We know that's deeply motivating. It sounds like a really lovely balance in which there is a shared common pocket of time in which people can relate, they can spend time speaking with one another, there's there's a sense of rhythm. And I think that also creates more opportunity for a sense of culture to, to propagate, even if people aren't being physically in the same location, which of course is one of the challenges that we increasingly face. De- definitely. I think that's one of the, the pieces. And I think in a strange way, because of the hybrid world, I mean, if you think of the work-life balance now and, and the idea of remote working and all the data so far suggests that we're going to, in most companies, there will be some companies, Spotify is an example, where they've you know, been able to say anyone now can work fully remotely if they want to. The other extreme, of course, Goldman Sachs, you know, said that they want all their employees back at the desk in July. So you've got these extremes, but I think what's probably going to happen is we'll, we'll end up in a hybrid world where perhaps two or three days a week we'll be in the office, two or three days a week at home. And so that idea, I think, of creating that, that, that sense of autonomy is going to be even more important. We can't micromanage our staff, those of us who are leaders of organizations or managers in the same way we did before. We've just got to trust them much more. The good thing is I think that trust will, will more than pay itself back in terms of motivation and ultimately productivity. Mm. So one of the other themes that you touched on in your book is a sense of alienation that can arise or emerge in the face of vast and complex social problems. And so given these challenges, and you've touched on some of them, you know, we talked about the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement and also issues around sustainability and climate change. How might we better motivate ourselves in the face of these seemingly intractable issues, um, especially as a society and for those leaders who are in positions of power and who who do want to make change, how can we motivate ourselves so as to make the necessary changes to our system, perhaps without burning out? And I think actually one of the, the key challenges with this, I think, has been this sense of, of, of the world being a zero-sum game, in which, you know, basically, if, I, uh, if you gain something, I lose, or if I gain something, 
you lose. And that was very old thinking that, you know, economists have long debunked since then. But I think that's still how we think about the world. And, you know, I went back to looking at Charles Darwin in the book and uh, for the research for the book, and I, we talked about, you know, he talks about, of course, of this idea of survival of the fittest. Most of us think of that, and certainly the business world has thought about it as, you know, that means dog-eat-dog, I've got to be taller, you know, I've got to be 5% better than the next person. In fact, what Darwin was talking about really was this idea of diversity, that we need to stand out and be different. And I think what we need to create is, is a world where all of us can really feel that we can live the lives we want to live and, and in the way that really matters to us most, and be diverse and distinctive. Mm. And so a lot of the challenges we're seeing around, you know, to take the issues around inequality, you know, we know that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting, you know, are stagnating often in terms of, of, of their earnings and wages and so on. I think one of the key things is how do we try and bridge that opportunity and and really ensure that all people can progress and, and develop. So rather than thinking of it as a, there are only so many good jobs out there, that's nonsense. We know that if, if the more people are educated, the more people who have good jobs, that creates demand for more new jobs and more good jobs as well. So trying to rethink about how we can all prosper and flourish as a as a society, rather than thinking about competition. And competition is the you know, absolute extreme of intrinsic motivation. It's very much about extrinsic or external pressure on someone to perform. Mm. Many of our systems now in companies, but also in public services now in the world, are based on that idea of competition. And that's, uh, I think, thinking that's well past its sell-by date. And so thinking about the future, what vision of the future are you holding? I think I'd like to see three, um, three parts of that vision, at least. So one is as individuals we're able to live the key areas of our lives. So the area of work, how we nurture our talent and careers, our roles in, in relationships and as parents and as citizens, we live that, uh, those lives in a way that's deeply motivating for all of us. Uh, where we have these core elements of purpose that we talked about, the autonomy we've talked about, and the sense of mastery, us constantly getting better and better and feeling more and more fulfilled in these things. So that's kind of one, one side of that, that vision. The other side, I think, the next level up, if you like, is that the organizations we're part of, whether it's, you know, the place we work or our son's or our daughter's school, they embody that as well and really allow these elements of purpose, autonomy and mastery to be strongly present. And the final level is really at a, at a sort of national level. Most of us, of course, are citizens of countries. The, the country, the policies of those countries really enable us to live these flourishing lives and allow, you know, whether, for example, things like a guaranteed income, for example, which enable us to take a lot of the risk of changing what we do in the world of work, all the way to policies that allow us to be deeply present parents and really engage our children in their early years. All of these things could be part of that, that national domain as well. So those realms of, you know, us as individuals, the, the second level being the organizations we're part of, and the third level being the countries we're citizens of, and the book, An Intrinsic Read, tries to look at all three levels and tries to map out a path, a manifesto, if you like, of how we could get there. I'm very intrigued by the connection that you make between these themes and how they show up in relationships and through our parenting and through our citizenship. In the work and the research that you did, were there one or two specific things, common pitfalls that showed up across all three of these domains that you think would be helpful for us to look out for? I think a key theme, that I found in the research and, and doing lots and lots of interviews for the book was that these things are deeply intertwined and this, there is massive spillover effects of, of not getting one part of our lives right. So mm. I think employers have a huge social responsibility to ensure that employees have meaningful work, not just uh, and motivating work, not just 
in the hours they're there, uh, but also because if they don't get it right, it does really cascade into other parts of our lives. So my, my son plays cricket. I'm often just watching uh, outside the cricket pitch, for example. <laughs> and you see the other fathers who are just yelling at their kids. And what's really clear is they are living their lives through their sons, or living their dreams through their, their, their sons. And I think it's such a dangerous place to be because in doing so, of course, what the, the parent is then doing is destroying real autonomy for the child to figure out their own path and find things they're deeply motivated by and passionate about. Mm -hmm. And so I think the, the core insight is that these three concepts of purpose, autonomy, mastery, the research into them started with the, the world of work, but it's as important to get these right in our personal lives because they all deeply interconnect. And so what change do you most long for? If we're thinking about things like maybe practical steps, if you're going to give people a, a piece of advice to help empower them along this journey towards purpose, autonomy and mastery, what change might you suggest? So I think there isn't, I think everyone's life is different. Everyone has a different starting point and place they may want to start that change. What I, what I suggest in the book is a little bit of a, a framework to think about how to make that journey and to get there. And what I found is, and we touched on it a little bit earlier in the conversation, but starting with really putting down that cost of an action. You know, often we don't, we sort of have a sense of it. We don't really know how much it's hurting us motivationally, whether it's the not quite finding, you know, motivation in our work or having a, a challenge with our spouse. Being able to put that sort of almost on paper and say, this is why it's so painful and costly to us, basically, um, psychologically and in our, in our life. And once we have that, looking out for that opportunity that's out there. What, what I found is that there's almost always a first entry point, a first step you can make that takes a bit of courage, but rarely costs a lot in any, any sense. It might be, for example, making a small way, making a small change in how you, 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 you frame your work, as we've talked about earlier today. Once that small step is in place, it becomes really possible then to take bigger and bolder steps, but doing it gradually and very consciously managing against any any downsides or risks through the process. So I talk in the book about a few different, you know, stories of people who've done that, both in their personal lives and in their uh, working lives. But that sequence of just taking those small steps, learning, growing, building more confidence, keeping on going, seems to be a common theme how to make these transitions. Rather than the kind of big bang, one day you change your job, you change your spouse and, you know, leave your kids or whatever it might be, that, that rarely is successful. It's usually that, that gentle um, easing in but just starting with the realization that things need to change and, you know, how we started the whole conversation about this need to get out of this languishing phase that many of us are stuck in right now. So your book's coming out on the 2nd of September, which is very exciting. Where can people find it if they want to go check it out? Uh, please search for Intrinsic, I-N-T-R-I-N-S-I-C, on your local Amazon site and you'll see it with my name against it as well. But really excited to talk more about it today and and I hope it's uh, exciting reading for everyone. And so beyond your wonderful book, what book has most captivated your imagination recently and, and why? So many that have really come to mind lately as well. But one that I think I, I really uh, enjoyed reading as part of the research for the book was a book by the late Clayton Christensen, who was a, a former um, Harvard Business School professor. He died last year, very sadly. But he was a really inspirational figure. He was a, he was a great author on innovation. He created sort of new models for thinking about entrepreneurship and so on. But he wrote a deeply uh, introspective book a, a few years ago called How Do You Measure Your Life? And in it, he talks about, you know, many generations of Harvard Business School students that he taught. And obviously, there's some of the brightest people in the world who are on that program. But just how even for such a smart group, 
they didn't always know how to, often actually didn't know how to anchor their lives around things that were really important to them motivationally. So they would you know, take jobs that were, were high paying, high status, but not jobs where they had that deep sense of purpose of helping and serving others. And what he found is it was fine for a while because they were paid well and they got the nice house and all these things, but they hit a plateau a little later where they realized that what they were doing was, uh, was not really deeply meaningful and motivating. And actually, the, the costs of that had spilled over into their personal lives. They were, you know, they had increasingly transactional relationships with children and, and so on. And it was just a really cautionary tale that, you know, one, one view is, you know, if you're smart enough, you can, you can get around this. I don't think that's, that's true at all. It's more about being able to be, think differently about, about our world and being open to rethinking many of the assumptions that we've been drilled into since we were young about motivation and just going on that shift in, in mindset, really. Mm, I'm going to have to check that book out. It sounds wonderful. So thinking then about all of the different themes upon which we've touched in today's conversation, if you were going to give people, the listeners, a question you might like them to dwell with right now, what might that be? I think really given the times, Natalie, just thinking for a few minutes and saying, how does this current period of languishing that we, you know, that we talked about, how is that hurting us? What is it doing for our, you know, our sense of purpose, of work, and our sense of helping and serving others? What is it doing for us in terms of our key relationships? What is it doing in terms of how we engage more broadly in our communities and our societies? How does it manifest in how we show up for our kids or our, our partner in our lives as well? I think starting with that question and trying to pinpoint where is the pain happening, it's almost certainly happening, I think, in all of us. It's just putting that first finger on it and being able to talk about it and almost label it. That feels like the first step. And I think once that's clear and we're honest with ourselves of what that really feels like and why it's so painful, I think all kinds of realizations can come and all kinds of ways to address it can emerge. I hope the book can be a really uh, a useful uh, uh, guide and, and friend to that. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears. And for more information, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast or reach out to me on Twitter at Natalie Nahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. <laughs>